Good evening. Please be seated. First Chronicles chapter 25. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. Oh, oh very good. Thank you. They're coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. And so if you just get their attention and uh, they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands. We cover a little bit of territory on Sunday nights, so important to be able to not only listen, but also to follow along uh, with our eyes. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we pick things up tonight in chapter 25. Now, David, King David, the second king of Israel, he is now uh, late in his life and he is preparing for death. The most important thing in his whole life, I mean, the whole focus of these final uh, chapters of First Chronicles, he doesn't uh, pull, you know, people aside and this is how to hold on to power and he doesn't uh, and hold on to our boundaries and our wealth that we've gained is, is me as the king and um, all about power and winning wars and establishing, you know, all this kind of stuff. That's not important to him at all. His whole life at its core had to do with the worship of God and being faithful to what God had called him to be. And what God had called him to be was the king of Israel. So his whole focus is on uh, what's most important to him in his relationship with the Lord at this point, and that is the building of the temple. And he knows that he isn't going to be able to build it, but that God has determined that his son Solomon is going to build that temple. As we saw last week, he is going to do everything short of building that in order to make it easy, easier for his son to fulfill the calling of building the temple upon his life. Solomon is probably in his late teens at this point in time. This is David is handing off his baby to Solomon. It's the mo- it's just like. You as a parent, if you are, uh, we can envision ourselves on our deathbed. We know that we are heading into eternity and we are giving something to our children that's important for them to do. Most important to us in life, of course, that is all of us head into eternity saying, would you please walk with God? I'd love to see you in heaven. That's all I care about. I don't care what degrees you get or what whatever you accomplish. Just want to see you there. Well, for David here, he's handing over this building of the temple to Solomon. And and this is the most important thing in his life. Solomon's a very young man. So David is is doing a lot of things as an older man now in his late 60s. Uh, that Solomon wasn't really up to. He lacked the experience. It is interesting, um, and this is one of the things that I think is nice about growing up in the church. So many uh, people do, and then others come to know the Lord a bit, little bit later, and we start to come to church, at least in earnest, you know, in our adult life. But it is one of the nice things to oftentimes, as a young person, say in Solomon's place, uh, to uh, grow in the ministry and grow and grow and grow. Solomon wouldn't do that quite right, so his illustration breaks down, but a lot of other people do it right. And then they look back and they realize there was some older man or some older woman in the Lord 
that was looking out for me and making sure I only uh, had to do what I was able to be successful at at that point in my life. They knew I was green or wet behind the ears. They kept me encouraged, all this kind of thing. And so it's the older looking after the younger, knowing that great responsibility was going to come to the younger. And David is doing this with his son. It's always beautiful to watch, whether it's a, a child of our own blood, flesh and blood, or, you know, somebody else in the body of Christ. And so David has amassed all of the wealth that is required to build the temple. And uh, he, uh, that isn't sufficient for him. He also then accumulated uh, or organized the different ministries that would be required for worship at the temple in order for it to run decently and in order. And we've already seen how he kind of put the structure for the ministry of the Levites. We might call them deacons today, the ministry of the priests. We might call them elders today in kind of modern vernacular. And then he moves on to the realm of worship. He organizes how worship is to be conducted at this newly built uh, temple. And moreover, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 25, David and the captains of the army, they separated for the service uh, some of the sons of Asaph, of Heman, and of uh, Jedathan, who should prophesy, uh, lead in worship, with harps, uh, stringed instruments, and cymbals, and the number of the skilled men performing their service was. And then it goes on to list some of those that would be a, a part of this. Now, one of the most famous names related to worship in the Old Testament is listed there in verse 1, a man by the name of Asaph. And uh, 12 psalms in the book of Psalms, Psalm 50 and then Psalm 73 through 83, all of them are ascribed to Asaph or to one of his descendants. And you get into that section of the psalms and you read those psalms and uh, some of them have a very quick way of becoming uh, our favorites and very, very anointed man, not only in leading worship, but uh, God also giving him worship songs that were to be sung and become a part of the Jewish hymnal, which is what the book of Psalms was. It's interesting that these men were called in verse one there uh, in the description of their ministry would be that they should prophesy with harp stringed instruments and with Symbols. They were, in other words, they were to provide the worship at the temple. And uh, this use of the word prophecy is, is interesting. And it refers to the fact that the songs that were given to them to sing were given or inspired by God. The finest songs, of course, that we sing and God continues to give songs to people like this all the way through to this day. Of course, the finest songs are the songs that are given by God. And by virtue of the fact that they've been given by God, they are prophecy, uh, so to speak. And so these God was giving them songs that, that they could then lead people in to sing to the Lord. You think about some of the great songs that have endured the ages, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. And we find ourselves as eager to sing those same truths to the Lord and about the Lord as they did when they were first written. And it's just the witness of the spirit 
to the content of the song, but also that recognition that God's people through the ages, whatever the, whatever it is that's being said in these hymns or these songs, are something that we find that we need to sing to God as much as they needed to sing to God. And it's a characteristic of a song that has been given by God. It is a prophecy from God. I think one of the most powerful experiences in life, and, it, and I... And it's important, you know, I don't want to uh, complicate worship for us at all. But when when you walk into a room where Christians are worshiping God in spirit and in truth, there is a prophetic element to that. There is nothing like that in all of the world. Hollywood can't put that together. Uh, not for a hundred million dollars, not for two hundred million dollars or three hundred million dollars or whatever the budget is. When you have a group of people worshiping God in spirit and in truth, whether a large assembly of people or in a home fellowship, and and God is indwelling that praise, and someone walks in who does not know the Lord, that is a very, very powerful dynamic to walk into. And God will use that to speak to people. So there's this worship that we're engaged in. And of course, our focus is on the Lord, giving him the worth and the praise, ascribing it to him that he is worthy of. But there's a very large dynamic that is happening. God can use that worship, what's being sung to him by his people to then speak to and impact someone who doesn't know the Lord yet. And they sit there and they go, there is something real about what is going on in this room right now. And I ought to give some consideration uh, to it. I think in terms of the prophetic element related to worship as well and how God can use it by his Holy Spirit is that um, years ago or however early it was in my Christian life, you know, one of the great experiences in the Christian life is to just be going along, driving down the road in the shower, whatever the kind of deal is. And then you find yourself, you're singing a worship song or a hymn. I mean, you don't even... You don't even know where you began. You, you began it right mid-sentence of the second stanza or whatever it is. And you've been singing it maybe for 45 seconds before you realize you have or you're humming it or something like that. And you realize, wow, I am, I'm singing a worship song to the Lord. And I would just think, boy, that's so weird. God is so great how he does that, puts a song on your heart and all those things. But then sometimes it's good for us to step back where we start to sing kind of under the influence of the Holy Spirit, sing some particular song to the Lord, step back and listen to what it is that we're singing to the Lord. Because sometimes it can be prophetic. It can be God speaking to us through that hymn or through that spiritual song, something about himself that we need to be reminded of. And maybe it will bring perspective to us in the trial that we're in at the very moment or in a trial that God knows is coming to us tomorrow. So there's this whole prophetic element to things. So a worship song, in order to have it be God-given or prophetic, it has to have content. It has to, number one, speak of God because he is the object of our worship. And then number two, it needs to uh, be characterized by not only speaking of God, but be filled with what we feel as Christians is 
something that we need to say to God. And so you have those two great things that make up the greatest worship songs. Great God is being exalted um, in his greatness. And then as he's being described to us somehow, maybe in the worship song, we find ourselves needing to say something great to him. And, and there's that substance to the song and those songs that God is a part of. And then people argue uh, uh, it used to be all hymns in the church 40 years ago, and the hymns have a particular strength to them. And then the choruses came in for a time starting in the 80s, strong in the 70s, and then beyond. And, uh, and they kind of overwhelmed the hymns in kind of a charismatic movement or kind of knew what was going on in the last a couple of decades that the Lord was doing and the hymns kind of got lost. And now we come back to a place where people are using both. The strength of the hymn is the content, what it speaks to us about God, the greatness of God. And I think that one of the things we have to be careful of is we're all a little bit different. Some of us begin our worship with God, with our mind. Uh, we get some great thought gets put in our mind concerning God, and we begin to just roll out with that. And then the heart follows that. But there's a completely other different kind of person who begins, by and large, not always, but they begin in their heart. They begin with a personal relationship with the Lord, the emotion of that relationship. They start to roll out that way, and then their mind begins to follow now with the content. And it isn't a case of choosing one or the other. And, and, and in past years, there was kind of a fight. It's like, oh, the hymns are just... Dead, they're nothing, they have nothing to offer to us. And they got put kind of on the uh, garbage heap for a while. And then other people came and they said, the hymns are everything that's the only, and these silly little choruses uh, that we're singing today, they don't say anything substantial, and people were rebelling against that. But both of them are necessary. They both can contain worship directed to God. And they can contain what we need to say to God. The strength of the hymns most often is that they speak about God. And as a person is singing about the majesty of God, the greatness of God, then on their own, they begin to worship the Lord inside. But that's a, a leap they take on their own. Just, just by personality, that's the way that they are. And the strength of the chorus is they are less about God and they are more to God. And so they make it easier for a person to just be singing about God and then somehow in their heart make it to God in the privacy of their heart. The choruses allow us to just in a beautiful intimacy of how we would talk with God in everyday language, what we feel about him and our personal relationship with the Lord to just say it to him that way. And so they both are strong. God can be in both of them. They're complementary. They're not, uh, you know, competing with one another. And they can both have this prophetic element associated with them. And so but it is important in a worship song, that there be that prophetic element, that God is exalted, that we are. Sometimes you read the Psalms in the Old Testament, and they are a praise to the Lord. And at the same time, they're a lesson in theology. 
I mean, God, it begins in this tremendous praise being lifted up to the Lord. And then the Lord reminds them of something related to their history and how he's the same God. And, and, and he gives them a lesson right in the song in order to stir up something wonderful inside of them. So there's no cookie cutter on all of this, but uh, just uh, sufficient to say just the power of, of worship for the, the child of God and that it does have to have it does have to supremely exalt the Lord because I have a need. You have a need to just worship him, ascribe worth to him, give him praise and thanksgiving for how good he has been to us. And then the song will also contain what it is that is in the heart of the average person to say to God. Not all of us. You look at David. The vocabulary he had, the worship vocabulary he had, the way, the incredible ability that he had to express his heart toward God. I mean, some of us have problem memorizing the Psalms, let alone writing a Psalm. So we really depend on worship leaders to put all of that together for us to then allow us to say, man, I'm so glad he or she wrote that because I have such a great need to say this to God. And so this is what uh, David concerned about the worship experience of people in song and and uh, the playing of the instruments uh, there at the temple and so this is how uh, it was uh, to be established. I notice also in verse one, it's interesting to notice that David was uh, uh, not only concerned that the worship would be done decently in an order, but there are many references through this section uh, to skill and to ability. And so here we've got David talking about the skill. And, and so David's love for the Lord, his absolute love for worship and his desire that not only he would be able to worship the Lord and the gift that God had given to him, but that these songs would also be written by others so that all of us could then join in and, and worship the Lord uh, as, as well. So David and these leaders, they kind of took the lead here in the uh, religious life of the nation. Even though he was a king, he wanted to make sure that Proper worship was being directed uh, to the Lord. And, and for David, it was just a reflection of reminding the nation, I am not the king of Israel supremely. Uh, the Lord is, uh, is the, the king of, of the nation. Now, it tells us in verse 3 that of Jedathan, the sons of uh, Jedathan, Gedaliah, Zerai, uh, Jeshaiah, Shimei, uh, Hashabiah, and uh, Mathaniah. Uh, so six of them, they were under the direction of their father, father, father uh, Jedathan, there's a new triad, and uh, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks uh, and uh, to praise the Lord. And so here we have the purpose of, of the songs to give thanks to the Lord. We have a need to express thanksgiving to God. He's so good to us all the time. And then, and then also to give him praise. And so that's the purpose of worship. 
point people to God, and then give us the words that we can thank and praise God with. That was their ministry. And I'm thankful for uh, the men and women of our fellowship that lead us in worship and those all around the world. Of Heman, uh, the sons of Heman were, uh, are listed here. And we t- are told in verse 5, all of these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, in the words of God to exalt his horn. For God gave Heman 14 sons and three daughters. All of these were under the direction of their father for the music in the house of the Lord with cymbals, stringed instruments, harps for the service of the house of God. Asaph, Jedathan, and Heman were under the authority of the king. And so they had great freedom in this realm, but they were under authority to, to the king for to keep everything just the way it needed to be. And so the number of them with their brethren who were instructed in the songs of the Lord, all who were skillful, again we see skill, was 288. And so there was uh, 288 of, of the sons of, of these men. Uh, they were skilled. And uh, but we know back in chapter 23, verse five, that 4000 musicians had been dedicated to worship at the temple. So apparently uh, the remainder of the 4000 were unskilled. And we can presume that they became kind of apprentices and growing in the realm of of worship. And uh, so that numerically that that's uh, where it is this again on this issue of skill. The idea of skill in leading worship, and we all begin where we begin, whatever our calling is. We're only as good as we are, but but all of us ought to be growing in our calling. And the same thing as it relates to worship. Uh, this, the idea of skill is with the, uh, carries, the thought of it is, is so as to not be a distraction. Sometimes, um, if a worship leader makes lots and lots and lots of mistakes, it's almost better to go a cappella or something because all you're focusing on are, are the mistakes. And so it's important to grow to where uh, a worship leader reaches a place where there is sufficient skill that we aren't hitting the wrong notes all of the time or distracting people from uh, uh, being able to worship without, you know, always, you know, noticing that that lack of skill. But it's all but just as distracting, I'll say almost as distracting is an absence of skill that way is is someone who has tremendous skill and they just want to show off because now they're competing with the Lord and then the Lord doesn't give his witness to it. He doesn't inhabit it by his Holy Spirit. And then we realize, all right, this is almost as great a distraction as being uh, unskilled uh, altogether. So the importance uh, for all of you who are worship leaders in the body of Christ Start where you are, but it's important for worship leaders not to stop growing until you are skilled in what it is that you're doing. It's an honor to lead God's people in the worship of the Lord. Man, you just think about that. What an honor that is. And so it isn't to get where, okay, I learned uh, as much as I want to learn about the guitar or this instrument or vocally in six months, and everybody will just have to live with that. No, we want to keep on learning and growing and growing in that skill and the beauty of, of those instruments in leading people in, in the worship. It's a very high calling uh, to lead people 
in worship and skill and growth and skill is very important. So they cast lots for their duty. Verse eight. And the small as well as the great, uh, the casting of the lots was uh, in order to assure fairness, the teacher with the student. And so you had this broad mix of skill levels so that they could learn from one another. And then like the priests and the Levites, the rest all the way down through the end of the chapter, uh, these worship leaders were uh, broken up into uh, uh, 24 different shifts and uh, these shifts were rotated as they were needed. And there is the listing of the heads uh, of these 24 shifts. Chapter 26. Now concerning the divisions of the gatekeepers of the Korathites, uh, Meshalemiah, the son of Korah, of the sons of Asaph, and the sons of uh, Meshalemiah were Zechariah, the firstborn, uh, Jediel, the second uh, Zebediah the third. Well, let me just see how long this goes right here. All right, let me just tell you about gatekeepers uh, here related to uh, their ministry. The thing about gatekeepers, sometimes we think, well, the gatekeepers are the kind of the ushers of the Old Testament. They open the door so people could come in and uh, go out. Well, they might have done a little bit of that. But basically, they were the security detail. At the temple, you had storehouses that were filled with enormous wealth. I mean, almost all of the furnishings and the instruments that were used in the worship of the Lord, they were made of pure silver. They were made of pure gold. Uh, there was uh, the storage of uh, taxes and revenue and offerings that were made to the Lord and sometimes huge uh, amounts of money that were given to the things of the Lord, as we'll see in just a couple of minutes. And so these men were kind of the security detail to make sure as they would open the gates uh, that would give you access to the area of the temple, that you were coming there not to rob the place or for any kind of funny business, but that you were a true worshiper of the Lord. And so they were kind of a, a, a security uh, detail, and, and it was uh, necessary. And so there's the listing down in verse 8 of the sons of Obed-Edom, and his descendants were told that 62 were of Obed-Edom. And then uh, Meshelemiah uh, in verse 9, 18 able men, and then uh, we're told at the end of verse 11 uh, that there were 13 more uh, of uh, of the other family. So a total here of 93 and that are listed of men. They were uh, kind of the supervisors, again, of 4,000 Levites or 4,000 men who were given total uh, to the security uh, of, of the gates. And so this is uh, how many there were, how they were divided up. And among the divisions, uh, we're told, verse 12, uh, among these were the divisions of the gatekeepers, among the chief men having duties just like their brethren to serve in the house of the Lord. And so it was a, a very, um, um, you know, it was kind of more of a physical kind of ministry and, and that kind of a thing. But it was a very spiritual ministry. A, a, um, and they cast lots. I'll skip that thought. I was going to tell you so. So they cast lots for each gate 
and a small as well as the great, according to their father's house. And the lot for the east gate fell to uh, Shelemiah. And then they cast lots for his son, Zechariah, a wise counselor. His lot came out for the north gate to Obed-Edom, the south gate, and to his sons, the storehouses. So uh, the storehouse. So again, we see the security element of this. These would need to be men of, of great honesty and integrity. Uh, they're defending great wealth, recognition that this, all of this wealth belongs to God. We're not here to help ourselves to it, but to protect it. And to uh, Supim and uh, uh, Hosa, the lot came out for the west gate with uh, Shalaketh gate on the ascending highway, watchmen opposite watchmen. On the east were six Levites, on the north four each day, on the south four each day for the storehouse Two by two, as for Parbar uh, on the west, there were four on the highway and two at the Parbar. These are the divisions of the gatekeepers among the sons of Korah and among the sons of Merari. And so 22 leaders over this group of 4,000 gatekeepers and then the gates that they were uh, assigned uh, to. And then we're told in verse 20, the Levites that were in charge of uh, the treasury of the Levites, uh, Ahijah was over the treasuries of the house of God and over the treasuries of the dedicated things. Um, and, and so these would have been the, the treasuries of the house of God and the treasuries of the dedicated things would have been the offerings that would come in, this kind of thing, to make sure that all of that was kept uh, safe. And um, let's see, uh, then it lists quite a few names that were, are, were involved in that particular ministry related to uh, the treasuries. And um, verse 26, uh, this uh, Shelemith and his brethren were over all the treasuries of the dedicated things, which King David and the heads of uh, and the heads of fathers' houses, the captains over thousands and hundreds, and the captains of the army had dedicated. And so all, part of what went into the treasuries was the spoil of the conquest of these surrounding nations after they had attacked Israel and been defeated by them. Some of the spoils won in battle they dedicated to maintain the house of the Lord. And all that Samuel the seer, Saul the son of Kish, the first king, Abner the son of Ner, and Joab, the son of Zerahiah had dedicated. So apparently there were things left over as a part of their reign and their estates that were then dedicated to the things of the Lord. They existed to that day. They were dedicated. Every dedicated thing was under the hand of this man and his brethren. So quite a responsibility that he had. Now, in uh, verse 29, we have a listing of the officials that were uh, uh, assigned uh, by David uh, for various parts of the kingdom uh, in the nation of Israel. Of the Isharites, uh, Chenaniah and his sons performed duties as officials and judges over Israel outside of Jerusalem. So they were kind of out maintaining law and order and being a presence for law and order uh, in what we would know as Israel proper today, outside of of the city of Jerusalem. Of the Hebronites, uh, Hashabiah and his brethren, 1,700 able men, 
had the oversight of Israel on the west side of the Jordan for the business uh, of the Lord and uh, in the service of the king. So again, uh, Israel proper, uh, Israel on the west side, the side they're on today in, uh, in their boundary on the west side of the Jordan River. Among the Hebronites, uh, Jerijah was head of the Hebronites according to his genealogy of the fathers. In the 40th year of the reign of David, David died in his 40th year, so all of this is being put in place late in his life. In the 40th year of David, the reign of David, they were sought. They were found uh, among them capable men at Jazer of Gilead. And his brethren were 2,700 able men, heads of fathers' houses, whom King David made officials over the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh for every matter pertaining to God and the affairs of the king. And so we remember the two and a half tribes uh, of Israel that settled on the eastern side, outside of Israel proper, um, and these men were then leaders and officials for, you know, making, uh, conducting government business Citizens having an access to government leaders on that side of the Jordan River as well. So we get into chapter 27. We have a dividing of the military and uh, civil leaders. Uh, verses 1 through 15, we have the listing and the division of the military, how the military was uh, set up and structured under David as he's handing the baton off to Solomon. And the children of Israel, according to their number, the heads of fathers' houses, the captains of thousands and hundreds and their officers served the king in every matter of the military divisions. And these divisions came in and went out month by month throughout all the months of the year, each division having 24,000. And so the military was uh, 12 different groups, divisions of 24,000 men each. They would be on for one month of active duty, and then the other 11 months they would go back and farm and do whatever, but they would be in the reserves, just like we have an active military and a reserve, so that at a moment's notice they could all be called up and in the in, in an emergency, so very, very wise use of of military force where you're not taking them out of uh, you, you're not spending uh, so much money on maintaining a military. You have enough for the times and then you're allowing them to also be productive related to society uh, in a non-military way. And so very, very uh, wise uh, uh, structure here and of course they had conquered all of their enemies by this time and it allowed them to have a military that was structured like this and lean like this it goes through and lists all 12 the leaders of the 12 different divisions every leader of those 12 divisions were one of David's mighty men listed earlier in the Bible so these guys were under just the greatest uh, leaders for military training, for respect. Uh, these guys were just more than the cream uh, of the crop. And then in verse 16, we're told that furthermore, over the tribes of Israel, the officer over the Reubenites was uh, 
uh, Eliezer, the son of Zikri, over the Simeonites, uh, Shephetiah, the son of uh, Maacah. And so here were the non-military officials that were over the various tribes is there listed. And uh, I won't uh, read you the names to that. You could do that on your own. Chapter 23. But David did not take the number of those 20 years old and under because the Lord had said he would multiply Israel like the stars of heaven. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, began a census but did not finish for wrath came upon Israel because of this sentence, nor was the number recorded in the account of the chronicles of King David. So. We remember within the last couple of weeks how David conducted that census to find out how big was the military of Israel and this kind of thing. It displeased the Lord because he was viewing the security of of Israel on the basis of the size of Israel's military rather than in the greatness of God's promises. And so that census was never fully completed. And uh, basically, this mention here is is put in First Chronicles to simply tell us that David recognized that what he had done was wrong. Uh, he had righted that that wrong in the situation. He realized, okay, uh, we are not any more or less strong on the basis of our military. Our strength is in God. He said he would make our numbers as the sand of the sea, and he's going to do that. And if he's going to be faithful to his promises, I don't need to follow him around counting how many he is at in terms of the number of the sand of the sea. And so David learned his lesson. Isn't God? It's just so wonderful that God, even when he deals with us firmly, that we learn the lesson and then it's like, all right, Lord, I'm back on track. Thank you that your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then we move forward. There's just uh, so much encouragement in the Bible. Uh, Nobody is perfect but the Lord himself. And then David's various officials are listed uh, here that he had uh, assigned over uh, his own property. He had private property. Uh, independent of being the king. And uh, Asmaveth, the son of Adiel, was over the king's treasuries. And so here we're talking about taxes that came in. So this is kind of official Israel kind of, of stuff. And he oversaw that for David. And then uh, uh, Jehonathan, the son of Uzziah, he was over the storehouses in the field. And so in the you know, one of the things that we've had in recent days is with the, the gas prices going up and oil and the price of oil. It's at a record, uh, a record high right now because of the instability of the world. And so we're talking about tapping into our strategic oil reserves. Why do we have a strategic oil reserve? Um, because it's a um, the storehouses both then and today were for the security of the nation. If you ran into some kind of a problem, you would then go into your storehouses. And so these were stores of, uh, of food that were kept throughout the land in case there was a problem or a famine or difficulty, and they could then begin to use the storehouses uh, to take care of the nation. And so he was over the storehouses in the field and the cities and the villages and in the fortresses. Ezri, the son of Caleb, was over those who did the work of the field for tilling the ground. So he was over the farmers. 
And Shimei was over the vineyards. And uh, so he conducted the health of the vineyards and all and the fruit. And then Zabdi, uh, the Shifmite, he was over the produce of the vineyards for the supply of wine. So he took them from grapes uh, to wine, a different man over that. But all Hanan, uh, the Gedorite, he was over the olive trees and the sycamore trees that were in the lowlands. And so he took care of the groves of olive trees. And uh, Joash was over the store of oil. So once it became oil, olive oil, very, very valuable in those days, valuable today and tasty. And um, so uh, that was his responsibility. Uh, Shitrai, the uh, Sharonite, he was over the herds that fed in Sharon. Sharon was a very, very uh, great pasture place. So all this beef was marbled beef. Terrible for you, but oh so yummy. Just lots of marbled fat in that beef. And so he was over kind of the top, uh, top herds. And then Shaphat, the son of uh, Adlai, was over the fields that were in the valley. And so the valley still great grazing. This, this, was, this was good barbecue when they uh, tore into that stuff. Uh, Obil, the Ishmaelite, was over the camels. And uh, uh, Jedediah, uh, uh, well, it's something different than that. But anyway, he was over the donkeys. And uh, Jaziz, he was over all of the flocks. And all of these were the officials over uh, King David's property. And so clearly David believed in um, uh, uh, keeping a proper watch on and a proper management of his his personal resources. Now, uh, David had a, a, a very uh, a set of leadership that was very close to him. You can't have you. How many personal relationships can a person have in life that are super, super close? He couldn't have them with all of the great men in his army and all. So these kind of were where most of his time and relationships went in apart from his family. And so uh, Jehonathan, David's uncle, was a counselor or an advisor to David. He was a wise man and a scribe. So if you're going to have a counselor, you want to make sure he's a wise man. David really surrounded himself. We'll see it here. We'll see it elsewhere, too. David really, um, he, he could hear the Lord. God spoke to him, no doubt about it. But, but he wasn't a one-man show. The Bible talks about there being safety in the multitude of counselors, referring to godly counselors. He surrounded himself with godly men and obviously wasn't afraid of listening to another perspective. We all have blind spots. And to be able to receive godly counsel, take that to the Lord in prayer, and have it make him an even better leader. And so uh, his uncle was one of those men. Uh, J.L., the son, uh, was, one of, uh, was with the king's son. So he was involved in the tutoring of David's sons and making sure that they grew up into uh, decent young men and um, and also well-educated. Obviously, they ended up having a lot of problems. Ahithophel was the king's counselor, another advisor to David. And Hushai, the archite, was the king's companion. And so here was a man who was an advisor to David, but he was just a good friend. Everybody needs a good friend. I don't care what their role is. Someone you can trust. And uh, those are hard to find when you become Elvis. 
or uh, you become the king of Israel because who really likes you, who really knows you, or who's, you know, really looking for something from you. And uh, so this kind of man was very, very valuable. It says, it really, his name is gold, really, and, and uh, be, because of what, what he was to David. After Hithophel was Jehoiada, the son of uh, Benaiah, and then Abiathar, and the general uh, of the king's army was Joab. Chapter 28. David now makes his uh, heads toward his death now. He's very late in his life. Uh, David's going to live to uh, 70 years old. And this chapter 28 and 29 constitutes his final public appearance. So he has been ruling for a short period of time. We don't know exactly how long uh, he's been ruling with Solomon, kind of co-regents. And uh, you remember the other brother tried to take over the the kingdom and David called Solomon, sent him out on the donkey and the whole thing. And he became uh, king of Israel, but he did it in partnership with David. David's kind of tutoring him, nurturing him in this. Now, David, at this point, is going to hand the baton off to his son and he's just going to disappear off the scene now. And he's going to die and go to be with the Lord. And so this is his last uh, public uh, assembly and uh, public appearance. And it's interesting in knowing that it is his uh, final public appearance to see again the single great thing that absolutely dominates his heart. I mean, he doesn't talk about the Philistines. He doesn't talk about the Ammonites or the Moabites or let's get some more money or let's this or that or power and, and uh, you know, the seven secrets to conquering the world. He <laughs> doesn't care about any of it. All he cares about is the temple, the next step of the worship of God by God's people. That's all he cared about. And again, we go back to the fact here's David. He is kind of a father to a nation. And all he wants is to die and die knowing that his people are going to continue to grow deeper in their relationship with the Lord, even beyond the place that he had taken them. And so he sets everything up. Uh, for that to happen. This assembly, what an august group of people are assembled for this particular meeting. David assembled at Jerusalem all the leaders of Israel, the officers of the tribes and the captains of the divisions who served the king, the captains over thousands, the captains over hundreds, the stewards over all the substance and possessions of the king and of his sons and the officials and valiant men and all the mighty men of valor. So this gives us an idea. All of these men from all over the land of Israel are invited. So it lets us know how significant this event is and what David is going to communicate here, how important that is to him. He wants any, everyone uh, to, to hear this. And so David then arose to his feet and he said in addressing them, Hear me, my brethren and my people. I had it on my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of God and for the footstool of our God and had made preparations to build it. And so he speaks to the crowd of the great desire of his life was to build a temple. And God wasn't going to let him do it, as we'll see in just a moment. It's fascinating. The imagery that he uses here, he describes the house of the Lord as being for the footstool 
of our God. And in his mind, God had God had promised the children of Israel that he would meet with them over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, which was the the lone furnishing in the Holy of Holies. And so in David's mind, poetically, he sees the father sitting on his throne in heaven and then his feet, so to speak, resting on the Ark of the Covenant in the temple in Jerusalem. So it represented the presence of God, access to God, access to the God uh, of heaven. This was the picture that was uh, in his mind. Very, very beautiful. So he wanted to build the temple. But he says and in beginning of verse three, God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. Now, David wasn't uh, guilty of shedding innocent blood in this. But again, as we mentioned last week, God wanted the builder of the temple to be completely associated with peace. God is a God of peace. And when Jesus returns at his second coming and he establishes Um, His millennial reign, a thousand year reign, is going to be a reign of peace. It will be an enforced peace as is necessary. But God is a God of peace. He doesn't like all the war. He doesn't like the hostility, the bloodshed, the fighting, the people that get caught in these cross sections of power struggles between leaders and nations and, and all of this. So he wanted the building of the temple, even though Solomon wasn't a tenth of a man, the man spiritually that David was. But he wanted the temple associated with Peace, And so because David had been uh, the one that had led them into so many victories and so much blood had been shed to accomplish that, God denied him the privilege of building the temple. However, we're told in, in speaking of his innocence, the Lord God of Israel chose me above all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever, for he has chosen Judah to be the ruler and the house of Judah, the house of my father, and among the sons of my father, he was pleased with me to make me king over Israel. And then he speaks of Solomon being the, God's choice to build the temple. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons. He has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And so God, David speaks of the fact that Solomon was given two great privileges. Privilege number one, to be the king of Israel over God's people, to follow his father as king. Then the second great privilege of David, uh, Solomon's life, we're told in verse six, was to build the temple. Now he said to me, it is your son, Solomon, who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. And moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever if and that's a conditional promise which uh, Solomon broke. If he is steadfast to observe my commandments and my judgments as it is this day and now, therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, be careful. He speaks to this assembly to seek out all the commandments of the Lord, your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it as an inheritance for your children after you forever. That's a beautiful thing in David's heart because he's leaving And he's basically saying to a generation of leaders in that nation, I am handing over a nation to you that is tremendously blessed by the Lord. 
All you have to do is just walk with God and obey God so that he can continue to prosper you. And then you can hand over something that is prosperous and a blessing then to your children and then they to their children and they to their children. It is the longing of the heart of every generation to be able to hand over to their children a nation, a world, a home, a family that is better than the one that we experienced. And that's what David wanted to do. That's one of the reasons that things are very frustrating, I think, to men especially today, is we see that for the first time in our history as a nation, that may not be the case, that the same opportunity, the same potential, the same blessing is not being handed potentially almost immediately in our future from one generation to the other. The reason it's a frustration is that's the longing of all fathers. That's the longing of one mature generation toward another generation. But today, not everyone values that. And that's why we're in the place that we're in. But it's noble where it exists. And it certainly existed in, in David's heart. Then he turned his attention to Solomon publicly. And he charges Solomon now to complete this great project that was being entrusted to him. He said, as for you, my son Solomon, no... You circle that word with your mind. Know the God of your father and then serve. Circle that word in your mind. Serve him with a loyal heart or a complete heart and also with a willing mind, both the heart and the mind. For the Lord searches all the hearts and understands all the intents of the thoughts. And so God knows every person's thoughts and motives. He said, if you seek him, you'll be found by him. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. And in those three words, know, serve and seek. That's all that Solomon needed to do. Know God, serve him, seek him. And what's being handed off to you will become greater than it than it ever was under me. And 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 he he failed to do those things. And, and he fumbled away a great opportunity. And God spoke to Jesus. I mean, uh, David spoke to Solomon here about a loyal heart and a willing mind. Again, any time God speaks something to us, whether in a sermon or a spiritual gift through another person where the spirit bears witness to us, that came from God. Or whether it might be in our own scripture reading and boom, something just comes to life. So important to heed that because God is speaking something that he knows that we need to hear. And again, so, so often the tendency is to look at it and say, yeah, duh, everybody knows that. It's so obvious. Of course, Solomon could look at it and say, well, a loyal heart, a complete heart, sure, willing mind. Of course, Dad, come on. Why are you giving me this lecture in front of, you know, all of these people that are here? I think it's also important for us as Christians. The Bible says that we are to exhort one another daily, especially as we see the day of the Lord approaching. And we don't. The body of Christ doesn't, by and large. I can't speak for it around the world, but I would say in the United States of America, we don't. 
We will sit on our hands and close our mouths and watch people spiritually drive right off of a cliff and won't say a single thing because we don't want to jeopardize how messy things can get sometimes when we speak. And because we're so neglectful in this area, when you do have a deeply spiritual man or woman ever come to you and speak something into your life or my life, heed it. They won't always. David doesn't come and say, listen, son, I see a flaw in your life. I see you've got a willing mind, but you don't have a loyal heart. He's not going to he's not going to be that direct with him here. And so he says it the way that he says it. And then it's up to the listener to grab a hold of what this person is trying to say about me and what he notices is a weakness in my life. Because concerning Solomon's life is his heart and his mind would never. Well, they were united at the beginning of his reign, but there was separation later. He always had a willing mind. This guy was a guy. He he wrote the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon. This is a guy who knew more theology than anyone in his uh, era. He had the, the way to encapsulate Solomon is a man who had tremendous knowledge theologically and spiritually, who applied none of it to his own life. And the reason he didn't apply any of it to his own life was because his heart was not in connection with his mind, because his heart was stolen away by the multitude of wives that he married, and he was drawn off into idolatry. And there's a funny thing about the heart and the mind. If the mind, you think about how many people replay Solomon's testimony, the body of Christ today, no mountains of information. And yet their life is an absolute disaster because something of this world, something of Sodom has captured their heart. And when push comes to shove, the heart always wins over the mind, always wins over the mind. And that's why the mind and the heart have to be united in the worship of God. Jesus wasn't just spouting verses or, you know, just talking to talk when he said that we need to worship him and love him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul and all of our strength. Because when there's division in there, it's all going to fragment and fall apart. So here is something. David's speaking something wonderful here. I think he sees a weakness in Solomon and he calls him here in this uh, gentle but clear way. Solomon uh, heeded it for a time and and then uh, disregarded. And David said, consider now for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. So all of this organizational structure of the worship teams and the Levites and the priests and the gatekeepers and all of the material wealth that was there for the building of uh, of the temple there, none of it would be any good at all unless Solomon actually in a moment in time rose up and did what God called him to do. So it was the time for the doing. And then Solomon gave his son, uh, David gave his son Solomon the plans for the vestibule, its houses, its treasuries, its upper chambers, its inner chambers, and the place of the mercy seat. He gave him the plans for all that he had by the spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord, of all the chambers all around, of the treasuries of the house of God, of the treasuries of the dedicated things. So he gives him the blueprints for the whole temple. 
All of everything related to it, all, all the blueprints for the making of the furnishings of the house of, of the Lord, also for the division of the priests and the Levites, gave them the whole structure, the plan. Here's 24 cycles of this many people and where to put them. He gave the whole uh, thing to them for the work of the service of the house of the Lord and for all of the articles of service in the house of the Lord. He gave them gold by weight for things of, uh, of, of gold. For all articles used of every kind of service, for silver, for all articles of silver by weight, for all the articles used in every kind of service, the weight for the lampstands of gold and their lamps of gold by weight for each lampstand and its lamp for the lampstands of silver by weight for the lampstand and its lamps according to the use of each lampstand by weight he gave them gold for the tables of showbread which were in the uh, the whole holy place of of the new temple and also for each table and the silver for the table of silvers also pure gold for the forks the basins, the pitchers of pure gold, the golden bowls. He gave gold by weight for every bowl and for the silver bowls, silver by weight for every bowl, refined gold for weight by weight for the altar of incense and for the construction of the chariot. That is the gold cherubim that spread their wings and overshadowed the ark of the covenant of God. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all these works and plans. And so David re received all of this uh, vision for structure, all of the blueprints for how the temple was to be built and all by divine revelation from God. Again, he does everything but build this thing. I love it. And then he hands all of these plans uh, over to Solomon. And so all he has to do is just follow the plan and he'll do fine. And David said to his son Solomon, be strong. This final charge to him, be of good courage and do it. So he encourages him to be brave here. Then he warns about what is dangerous to, to any of us concerning a, a step of faith God is calling us to. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Fear is a great enemy uh, to faith. And here's the reason he could be of great courage and not give place to fear for for is a reason word for the Lord God, my God, this is the one I've got a history with. He will be with you when you see God saying, as, as he said, well, let me just continue to read it. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work of the service of the house of the Lord. When we read in the scriptures that God speaks to us of his presence and an encouragement of his presence. Basically, what's being communicated through that particular communication is success is guaranteed. Anything that God is with us to accomplish is as good as done. So that's basically what he's saying to him is that you have, you have the guarantee of success because God is with you here. And so it is concerning anything that God calls us to, because the Bible says he won't leave us or forsake us and what he's called us to do. And here are the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of the house of God. And every willing craftsman will be with you for all manner of workmanship 
for every kind of service. Also, the leaders and all the people uh, will be completely at your command. And so you have everything you need now to be successful. You just need to step out in faith and discover that you will be successful. Chapter 29. And moreover, King David said to all of the assembly, my son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. And the work is great because the temple isn't for man. This isn't just some fancy building that's being built. Uh, it it but, uh, is not for man, but for the Lord God. So he's building a building that's worthy of God. Now, one of the reasons that God gave David the, all of the blueprints, the dimensions, the whole thing related to the temple is that the temple wasn't to be built uh, supremely as just this big fancy building because we've got a big fancy God. That wasn't the idea behind it. Uh, so the temple wasn't to be built as this monument to man's ingenuity or his own ideas about God. Every inch of that temple spoke about the Lord Jesus. All of it is a type, a picture of him. All of the furnishings are a picture of him. So only God could put together the blueprints for that. And so that's why it was given to them in that way. And the temple was built for the Lord. Now, for the house of my God, I have prepared with all my might. Can you get a little amen? He certainly did. If you wanted something done, give it to David. Gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stone stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones and marble slabs in abundance. This is the kind of wealth he had uh, uh, brought together. He said, moreover, I have set my affection On the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. So David said, I have accumulated all of this wealth we have as a nation. I have funneled it toward the building of this temple. But it's not just me doing it as a king and then keeping all of my personal finances and and resources away from giving to the Lord. He then spoke and said, I have given of my own personal wealth as well uh, to the building of this temple. And it's fascinating because he speaks there in verse three of my own special treasure. The word that is used there in the Hebrew speaks of a resource of kind of Eastern, ancient Eastern monarchs would hold on to a certain sum of money as kind of uh, in case they got booted out and they had to go to another land to flee for their lives. Things were unstable uh, then as it is in the world today. So this was like constituted your security. This constituted Um, your safety, the safety for your family, to be able to move out if things got dangerous for you. And David is saying that he gave toward the temple, he reached all the way down into this amount of money. He, in in essence, he headed down into his necessity. He headed down. This represented a sacrificial gift on, on his part. And he wanted the people to know that in, in the sense of, 
of him recognizing that this is where he wanted to put his personal wealth before he went off into heaven. He gave 3,000 talents of gold. This is his personal wealth. That's 110 tons. I'll let you do the math with whatever gold is trading at today. Of the gold of Ophir. And 7,000 talents of refined silver. Uh, 260 tons of silver in order to overlay the walls of the houses. The gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and for all kinds of work to be done by the hands of the craftsmen. So David absolutely considered it the privilege of his life to give toward the building of that temple. That was his attitude. He couldn't believe that he could use his personal wealth in this way. And so he has, he has done this. This is where his heart is. He's given toward it. And then he speaks to all of these leaders. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day uh, uh, for uh, to the Lord? And so David invited all of these leaders. You notice the word willing. It wasn't like, um, uh, you know, uh, bring a buck Sunday or so whatever the fundraising things. I get this thing in the mail like three times a week email and in the headline of it. I've never read one word below the head headline. It says this, how to pry into their wallets. Oh, so delete, 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 delete. That's not what's going on here at all. David is so excited about the fact that he gets to, you know, honor the Lord in this way, worship the Lord in this way. And he invites, it's a willing kind of thing, and he's not going to keep that opportunity to himself. He gives them the opportunity to be a part of it as well and invites them to do so. And their heart was as great toward the Lord, loved toward the Lord as David's was. And so the leaders of the father's houses, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of the thousands and the hundreds with the officers over the king's work, they offered willingly. No manipulation, no constraint. It was like, wow, we get an opportunity to be a part of what God's doing in the world. So out of their own love for God, they gave and they gave for the work of the house of God, 5,000 talents uh, of gold, 190 tons, 10,000 uh, derricks of gold, 185 pounds, 10,000 talents of silver, that's 375 tons of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, that's 675 tons, 100,000 talents of iron, that's 3,750 tons, and and whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord into the hand of uh, Jehiel, the Gershonite. And then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord. And David also greatly rejoiced. And so this great, this great offering was taken toward the building of the temple. Everybody just pinched themselves. We get to give God, be a part of what he's doing in human history. And they just loved it. The total between what David and the leaders gave, they gave in terms of all of the medals, uh, 46,610 tons. 
over 93 million pounds of materials they gave to the building of that temple. David was so moved by this that he just heads into this spontaneous praise to the Lord at the moment. And so therefore, David, he blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor, they come from you and you reign over all in your hand is power and might in your hand. It is to make great and to give strength to all. So he just offers pure praise to the Lord. And then he begins to thank the Lord. And now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I, David said, and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly willingly as this? Now, I'm not going to take an offering, so don't think I'm trying to prime the pump here. But that's one of the most beautiful attitudes toward giving. I, 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 I would say in all of the Bible, David looks and he considers himself the background that he came from, who he was. He considered himself to be unworthy to give to God, that it was a privilege that God was giving to anyone to be able to give to him. And so David, such a healthy, beautiful attitude toward the Lord. And he said, and he said, for all things come from you and of your own, we have given you. All we've ever and all we ever give to God and David recognized that all we ever give to God is we give him back some portion of what it is that he has given to us. Everything belongs to the Lord and the whole wide world. Everybody else is just renting here. And then surely everything that we have as Christians have come from him. And in the giving, the heart attitude is so important. And that's why in the New Testament, it says that God loves a cheerful giver. Literally, in the Greek, it means he loves a hilarious giver. I mean, everybody just ought to break out just laughing, just hip, hip, hooray, or whatever. We pass out the kazoos and start a little band, march up and down the aisles during the offering. And that's how God, that's, that's the only kind of offering that he wants to receive from his people. Uh, you ever had anybody give you something grudgingly? You say, hm, back. I don't want it. Nobody wants that. So we always are giving back to him and giving to him what was his to begin with. But it blesses him that we're willing to do that. So you have a 10 year old boy. He comes in to see his dad and he asks his dad for 10 bucks. He says, Dad, would you give me $10? I want to buy you a present. Well, the dad's going to give him the $10. He doesn't care anything about the present. What he cares about is the attitude of the son toward him. And that's what we do in terms of our giving. It's a way for us to just express our worship toward him. The giving of, of offerings, the giving of tithes to the Lord, all these things that we do today, it is just God giving us one more way to worship him and to be able to say, you bless us, I love you, and I want to worship you in this way as well. It's a privilege 
to give to God's work. And I hate what what giving has become in a large part of the body of Christ, especially on television. I, I hate the disrepute that it's gone into and how poorly modeled it, it's been. And it's a beautiful thing that is being ruined before so many people. It is an honor and it is a privilege to give to God and to be a part of his work and to bless his heart in this way that he has given us to worship him as well. We, for we are aliens and pilgrims before you as were our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. And then David heads into a prayer uh, that he follows up this, this great song that he sings to the Lord there. And he says, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. And as for me, in the uprightness of my heart... I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy, I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. They have the same heart toward you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever. This attitude of worship and giving toward you. Keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you and give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and build the temple for which I have made provision. And then David said to all of the assembly, now bless the Lord your God. And so all of the assembly began to just praise the Lord and worship him. And uh, the Lord God of their fathers, they bowed their heads. They uh, prostrated themselves before the Lord and David, who was at the front of the meeting. And they made sacrifices the next day. They couldn't fit all this good stuff into one day. They made sacrifices to the Lord the next day, offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls. Oh, man, can you imagine this? They must have been smelling that in Syria, in Lebanon. And they got that Jonathan's meat market down there. I just drive within two blocks of it and um, and I am ready for a, a brontosaurus burger or whatever they've got there. A thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs with all their drink offerings and sacrifices and abundance for all Israel. So they offer all of these sacrifices, but it's not a pure barbecue. They offer them as an offering so that... In their mind, God is now participating in this celebration, this meal. And so they ate and they drank. Here it is before the Lord with great gladness on that day. And they made Solomon, the son of David, king the second time. And in, in other words, that now is the final official. And they anointed him before the Lord to be the leader and Zadok to be priest. And then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David, his father. Imagine that sitting on that throne and prospered and all Israel obeyed him, all the leaders and the mighty men. And also all the sons of King David, they submitted themselves to King Solomon. He had uh, their support. 
And so the king exalted Solomon exceedingly in the sight of all. Uh, so, yeah, so the Lord exalted Solomon exceedingly in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been seen on any king before him in Israel. And thus David, the son of Jesse, he reigned over all of Israel. That's his story. And the period that he reigned over Israel was 40 years, seven years he reigned in Hebron, then 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem, and he died a good old age, 70 years. That was a good old age in those days. I think I was reading what the life expectancy is in the United States of America for the average male. So we're up to about 79 now. So not bad for 3,000 years ago. And eating all that beef and lamb and all, I've got to tell you, I don't know the... Vegetarians have, of course, they've got a lot of exercise and all that kind of stuff. Well, listen, I'm already late. So he died at a good old age, full of days and riches and honor. So he'd run his race well. His life's work was completed. Solomon, his son, reigned in his place. And now the acts of King David, first and last, indeed they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer, with all his reign and his might and the events that happened to him, to Israel and to all of the kingdoms of the land. Let's stand together. The worship team would come forward. That would be great. If you're here tonight, and I don't want to close the service being uh, neglectful to share the way of salvation, you might have wandered in here for one reason or another and thought, what in the world was that? Well, it was a lot of good things, but the most important thing for you tonight is if you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to do that tonight. And there are going to be men and women up in front. They're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they would love to pray with you to ask Jesus into your life and begin a relationship with him this evening. So take advantage of the opportunity or any need that you might have here tonight that you want to have somebody pray for you for. They're here for that this evening. Let's pray together now. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for all of the instruction and just these handful of chapters that we've looked at tonight. They just leave us in awe of your greatness, your goodness, of your wisdom, Lord, your ways, of your grace, Lord. We give you praise. We give you thanks for who you are, what you are, what you've been in our lives, and all of the promises that are out in front of us through eternity. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for being our shepherd. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, would you close us? Amen.